Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. You guys have a Bible, why don't you open it up right now? We're going to be in John chapter 3. Uh, walking our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, It's been really great already. And today we land on the most famous verse in arguably in the entire Bible. And it is John 3.16, right? I was doing some research on how did John 3.16 become John 3.16? Like, how did it become like this really well-known pop culture icon of a Bible verse and uh, just kind of watching it. And it kind of just got really famous just through sporting events, people bringing signs and like holding it up and a couple of people in particular. Um, and so if you guys know of in and out anyone, in and out bottom of your cup, John 3.16, Forever 21 bags, John 3.16, it's just, it's kind of like... I don't know. It's it's kind of like the vanilla latte of Bible verses. You know, everyone likes it. It's just like, yeah, that'll do. You know, it's just... And I think because of that, like, let me just tell you, one of my favorite stories about John 3.16 and kind of like its pop culture iconic moment uh, is when Tim Tebow, who was the quarterback of the Florida Gators and then became a professional quarterback, um... For the Broncos, uh, they beat the Steelers in the playoffs. Um, he had John 360 on his face. And afterwards, uh, kind of the head of promotions for the Broncos went and told them all these like really wild facts about 316. I'll just read you guys a few of them. Uh, he threw for 316 yards. Um, the yards per completion was 31.6. Uh, the yards per rush were 3.16. Uh, the rating for the night was 31.6, and the time of possession was 31 minutes and six seconds. Um, and, and so it kind of became this like Christian subculture buzz, like, oh, 316 is making its way. You know, God has spoken. <laughs> he loves the Broncos, apparently, not as much as the Packers, but. Um, And according to that night, 91, the leading Google search that day was, what is John 3.16? 91 million searches um, that day. Uh, But the reason I bring all of that up is I think that that has actually caused a problem um, because we've sentimentalized uh, this verse. It's like we, for God to love the world, he gave his only son. It just, it's almost autopilot. We tune it out. It's a thing. It's almost so much of a thing that we actually pay no attention to its worth. And that's what this whole morning is about, is just to just push that aside. I'm actually going to ask you, whatever kind of previous kind of sentiment you have with this verse, not that it's necessarily bad or good, I'm just asking that we would suspend that for the next 30 minutes and that we would actually ask what would the Lord want to speak to our hearts today concerning this, these couple of verses that are incredibly beautiful and powerful. And I think the only, the hard part about this and even studying this is we come with all sorts of this sense, this kind of unconscious level of I already know that. And so I'm going to ask that we would just, in a moment here, we're just going to pray. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to take the truth of this verse 
and to let it move beyond just our mind, what we think we know, and to speak to our heart. Uh, David Benner has an amazing book I would highly recommend called Surrender to Love. Um, This won't be on your screen, but he has this quote and he says this, looking back, I find it remarkable how easily I accepted ideas about God as substitutes for for direct experience of him. It took me a long time to begin to know God through my heart and not simply my head. Um, That's our prayer this morning, is that we would be able to experience God at a heart level today. So just bow your heads with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly approach the living word of God. God, the scriptures that you've given to us as a gift, Lord, your revealed nature. And Lord, we begin with just repenting. If we've come in here with any sort of sense of, I already know this, um, Lord, we just put that aside and ask that you would speak to every single heart and soul in this place, Lord Jesus, that as a result, there'd be healing. Lord, there'd be new life. Um, There'd be a greater passion, Lord Jesus, and ultimately that we would be able to receive um, the incredible love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things, two goals that we wanted to kind of accomplish today. Uh, number one, for this, this passage to come alive for us, we have to do a little bit of work in understanding how would the words that John wrote come across to his original intended audience? And secondly, how does that meaning within that context translate to what God would want to be speaking to us today? Now keep in mind, if you were here last week, um, I really hope you were because last week is definitely a setup for this week. And if not, you can go back and listen to the podcast sometime. But the important thing to understand is that there has been an ongoing dialogue between a man named Nicodemus, who was a very influential religious leader, and Jesus, a new rabbi on the scene, um, about the idea of new birth or being born again or being born of the spirit. And this conversation is as peculiar as it sounds, which is why I would encourage you, if you didn't hear the teaching, to go back and listen, uh, ends with a really remarkable statement. It ends with this command, or this invitation, rather, that Jesus gives, saying, the Son of Man must be lifted up, which was a reference to the cross, and that whoever believes in him will have life. And so the conclusion of this conversation, you have a burning image, what we would find in hindsight, of Jesus on a cross. And then we don't hear about Nicodemus for years to come. But then John just dismisses what's happening in the story. And then he starts writing this discourse on on the significance of what this means. And this is where we find John 3.16. The dialogue has just ended. Now John's gonna start writing his own disposition on what new birth looks like. And so we have, but, but it's within the context of a highly religious, devoted leader to the Jewish faith. Jesus, this new radical rabbi who's on the scene, ending and culminating on we have to believe not just in the, the heritage of faith that we have, but in the person of Jesus Christ who will be lifted up. And so with that, we're going to read John 3, 16 and 17. And as we do, we're going to read it through that lens, but also let the Holy Spirit speak to us as we read it. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Um, There's much more that he writes, but we're just gonna pause at these two verses today just for the sake of time. But we're gonna be looking at three different themes that we find just through these couple of verses that reveal a tremendous amount about God's love. Number one, God's love is self-originating. God's love doesn't come from somewhere else or someone else. It comes from his own self-sufficiency. Number two, God's love is immeasurably expansive. And thirdly, God's love is presently merciful. Let's kind of work through these different themes and how we see them show up. The first one, God's love is self-originating, comes from the very opening lines of John 3, 16, for God so loved. Um, When we read this, uh, it's easy to open up that this is a verse about the depth of God's love, for God so loved. It's kind of the, the American way we use this word, so. It's to, it's to express a certain amount, um, a certain depth, a certain length. It's so big. It's so wide. The pizza was so good. Uh, the problem, <laughs> amen. Uh, the problem is this is not how the Greeks would use the word so. Uh, the Greek word here, hutos, does not talk about um, an amount, but rather a manner of something, not a degree of something, but how something would actually take place. Let me just give you like an example because this might sound a little bit confusing. So I play this game with my, my son Augustine, and it's super, it's super cute. Um, I'll look at him, and it'll just be like a random, we're just eating dinner or something, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, Augustine. He's like, yeah? I'm like, do I love you this much? He's like, no. Do I love you this much? He's like, no. How about this much? Do I love you this much? No. And I go, and my voice changes, how about this much? And he goes, yeah! And I'm like, wherever he is, we'll drop what he's doing, run full speed, and just wrap me up and just like, tackle me with his hug. And then we'll like play back and forth, and so he'll go, hey, dad, dad. I love you this much? I said, no. <laughs> I love you this much? No. I love, he's like, he said, I love you this much. I'm like, yeah, and I'm going to tackle him. And he's like, we do it all the time. It's our favorite game. But when we, when we read John 3, 16, we read it for God so loved the world. We read it at this part of the story. So loved the world. But that's actually the, the length or the kind of um, the amount but the Greek word here is, the, is not the, the, how wide it is. It's the actual embrace. It's the tackling. It's the pointing to the manner of love rather than just the amount of it. And the reason why we get this is in John 3.15, it just talked about Jesus being lifted up, which is a reference to the cross. And so John is saying, God so loved the world in this manner. God loved the world in this manner, him on the cross. This is how we know, not just the amount, which we find in other texts, but this is actually how it actually plays out. This is the wrapping of God, God, God's arms around us is Jesus lifted up on the cross. And so I would just encourage you to maybe think about this verse a little bit differently today, not just to say how much does God love us, but how did God love us? How does God love us? And through this, what we begin to see is that if God loved us in the manner of Jesus on the cross, it tells us something very specific about this kind of love. Number one, you didn't deserve it. 
If God's love is portrayed with Jesus on the cross, it means that you have nothing to do with the quality or the amount of God's love towards you. This is massively good news and also equally as hard to receive. John, in, later on in his life, writes a letter. And in 1 John chapter 4, he says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here, here's the big concept, the big first theme here is that the, the kind of love God presents is self-originating. The kind of love we see on the cross doesn't look at us as someone who is lovely or lovable, but rather speaks to the character of a God who is in of himself love. David Benner, again in his book, says this, the father's love reflects the father's character, not the children's behavior. Um, this won't be on your screens. I was gonna say this one more time because this is central. The father's love reflects the father's character, not the children's behavior. This theme we see all throughout scripture that again is pointing and culminating to the cross that the reason why God loves the nation of Israel, the reason why God loves you, the reason why God loved Abraham is not because he looked around and said, wow, they're amazing. I cannot help myself but love them. But rather, there's something at the core of who God is that cannot help himself but love because that's who he is. So in the Old Testament, we see this phrase again and again and again. It says, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. This is why he treats us with compassion, with mercy, with love. Is because it's in him. It's for his own glory. It's a part of his own nature. It's his attribute. It stems from him. Uh, notice Psalm 23, 3 says, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. For what? For his name's sake. Psalm 25, 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So David appeals, forgive my sin, not because I deserve it, but because your name. This is who you are. Ezekiel 20, 44 says, then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You see, the, the Lord's name in and of itself points to the kind of love we see on the cross. Hundreds of years earlier, Moses asks God about his name. And God tells him, and we know his name is Yahweh, but God spells it out. This is what my name means. This is what for my name's sake means. This is Exodus 34. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, by the way. Exodus 34. It says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We're gonna stop right there. What's the implication here? God's love is not because we are lovely, Rather, God's love makes us lovely. 
D.A. Carson, in his book, Showing the Spirit, says it like this. If I must say in few words what is distinctive about God's love for us, it is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what is unlovely. If John 3.16 tells us God loves the world, it is not because the world is so lovely. God cannot help himself. Judging by John's use of the term world, God loves the world only because of what he is. What a contrast to the kind of love that the world offers. Kind of the cliche term when describing God's love is that God's love is unconditional. And I think that does a poor job explaining the expansiveness of it, but at the same time, it makes a point because the world's love is incredibly conditional. They love what's lovable, what's lovely, what they deem is worthy of their love. And all of us at some level get trapped up into that that narrative of I have to be worthy of love in order to receive love. And when we're faced with the radical proclamation of the gospel that God loves us for his name's sake, we almost don't know what to do with it. As I was studying this week's sermon, I was having a conversation with Jen and she brought up um, a recent documentary that was um, made after Taylor Swift. And she was, and, and it was, there was this part of it that was really, um, it was really sad. And I, so I went and kind of researched, I didn't see the documentary, but the Washington Post did a, um, a summary of the, of the documentary. And through this, there's this point where she starts to get vulnerable and she says, I started my music career and my entire goal was to be good, was to be loved. And so years later to realize that I was so hated, I just threw it all away. And I'm paraphrasing here. But here's this, and if you know anything about her career, she started a very, as a young girl, a prolific songwriter out of Nashville, writing sweet little country songs about her being good. And somewhere along the line, the world said, we don't care. The, the number one most tweeted hashtag ever was um, was revolving around that Taylor Swift is over this hateful thing and cheese. And again, we can look at that as like some removed thing and we forget that behind that there's a person who believed the narrative of the world that, oh, love can be something that I can attain if I'm lovely and lovable enough. One thing that's quoted in her interview says, we're people, and we're, she's talking about artists, we're people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically insecure, because we liked the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. And I've been doing this for 15 years, and I'm just tired. What a contrast. What a contrast of loves. This is why the the news that God's love is self-originating is so disarming, but such good news. Henry Nouwen phrases it like this. 
As long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good looking, intelligent, and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world trying, failing, and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. The deepest craving of our heart, like we've mentioned before, is to be fully known and fully loved, but we are so fearful to not be loved that we refuse to ever be fully known. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in and of ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. For God so loved. A beautiful and profound good news to every single soul who's willing to hear that. The verse continues with, for God so loved the world. This is an interesting turn in his discourse because for John at this point to begin with for God so loved would not have been a shocking statement to someone who is familiar with the Torah, with the scriptures, because God's love is littered throughout all of it. But here is where for Nicodemus, things would have gotten really interesting because you see for him, God's love was powerful, faithful, self-originating, but it was focused and narrow. You see, God's love was for his people and maybe a little bit of mercy sprinkled for the rest of the world, but God's love was given in his children, the children of Israel. A matter of fact, the word son of, of God was given, before ever was given to Jesus, was given it to Israel in Exodus chapter four when talking to Pharaoh. So Israel had this esteem about them that they were deeply loved by God. But here, when we see this introduction of Jesus being high and lifted up, a prophetic picture of the cross, John begins to start writing. It says, for God loved the world in this manner. But he didn't just love your people. He loved the world. This world is we get our world um, cosmos, so cosmos. And this world is exactly what it sounds like. It is this immeasurably expansive kind of love that's not just talking about he loves the earth and nature, which he does, but the inhabitants of it have absolute focus of his love. And this is where things would have gotten really fascinating for Nicodemus or any Jewish audience that would have been reading this because they would have been familiar with God's love, but just not the expansiveness of it. Now, I want to 
rather than trying to convince you that God loves the whole world, um, I think everyone in this room would agree with that because you live on the coast in Southern California. It's 2020. And that's honestly, it's our paradigm. We think God should love everyone. That's not a shocking statement as it might have been for the original audience. It's kind of almost assumed, of course, God loves the entire world, which is great. I'm glad we're there. Where I think our problem lies in my own personal reflection and prayer this week is that we think that God's love is expansive to the entire world except me. That somehow God's love and mercy is extended to every single person and yet at the same time, it's something that is incredibly difficult for me to even think about could be for me. So for the next few minutes, I wanna just offer the thought that what if we thought about the incredibly expansive nature of God's love, not in how wide, but in how deep it goes towards you. And if you're like me, this will immediately make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. Because how, isn't, isn't it so much easier to give love than to receive it? Um, I was at a birthday party a couple weeks ago for my best friends, and he invited uh, a couple of people over to his house. And for his birthday, he wrote down things he loved about each person, right? Like, what a great guy. Like, this is your birthday? So he sat us all down in a circle, and he's like, I want to read you what I wrote for each one of you of why you mean so much to me. The uncomfortability in that room was so palpable and like tangible. We're all like, oh, what? Man. And, he's, and what made it worse, he's like, here's the rule. You can't say a compliment back. You just have to receive it. And we're like, no. <laughs> like, it was so hard. So like, and that, like, I guess that's like a rule with a couple of his friends. Like if someone says something nice to you, you can't say something back for five minutes. You just have to say thank you and sit with it. <laughs> Guys, it was insane how hard it was. It was so hard to sit there and let someone, just a human being, look me in the eyes and say, this is what I think about you. This is why you mean so much to me. This is how much I love you. And I just, going to be honest, the entire time, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Because there's something broken inside of me that I would so much rather love someone else than to receive love. I would so much rather give a compliment than receive one. I would so much rather make someone else's day than have someone else make mine. And at the same time, I'm longing to be loved, but I don't know how to receive it. Do you see the problem here? At my core level, there's nothing I want more than to be fully known and fully loved, to, to feel comforted and safe and encouraged. I desire that, but I don't know how to, what to do with that and how to receive that. And that has filtered into my spirituality. And so recently, I've, 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 as I've been reading through the scriptures, even John, the title he gives himself, the one that Jesus loved, I think is a mark of maturity. The more I read the scriptures, the more I realize that the mature Christian is not the one who can only give love. It's the one who can recognize and receive his or her own identity as the beloved. That's the mark of 
Christian maturity. I know I am deeply loved. Um, there was a time a few years back, I was teaching a class on spiritual gifts. We're going to a different way. I think we're talking about compassion or something. And we're going around a circle. I'm like, hey, why don't you tell us your name and something about yourself? And like, hey, I'm Tom, and I like to fish. And, you know, and hey, I'm Katie, and I like, you know, I like The Bachelor. And like, okay. Um, like, and it's going around, and we're saying things. And then we get to this guy, and he's in his 80s, quiet, slow, thoughtful. His name was John, actually. And I get to him, he says, my name is John, and I am deeply loved by my father. And it was the most odd feeling that none of us were like, oh, great, I love fishing too. We're all sitting there like, whoa, that the first thing that this guy thinks that we should know about him in his 80s, I'm deeply loved by God. And I felt so, I'm just being honest with you, I felt so uncomfortable. Partly because I would never have said that. And partly because I don't know if I ever could. Honestly, just my first thing. You know I should know of me? Hey, I'm Benji. I'm, you know, I'm the husband of Jen. I'm the father of my children. I'm the pastor of Light Church. I am deeply loved by God. That's what you should know about me. I just realized that that was so far removed from anything I would ever even think about. That it just like, it was like a rock in my shoe. I just could for months. I just kept thinking about this kind of quirky 80-year-old guy named John. And all he wanted us to know is that he was deeply loved by God. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, he, somehow he figured it out. Like he, he figured out something that for me, just for most of my life has been so elusive. And this is from someone who like, I didn't have a, a super traumatic childhood. My parents were actually in the 8 a.m. service and they still love me and they're married. And like they, I'm not like coming from like, I, I was, you know, super neglected or anything like that. I, but I, it makes me believe all the more that it doesn't matter what your story is. We as a human beings have a hard time receiving love. John, later on in his gospel in chapter 17, records a prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the cross. I mean, what a fascinating prayer to read. Just read it on your own sometime, John 17. And he writes about his love for the Father. He prays for his disciples. And then the, the third portion of it, he prays for you, the people who will come someday who will believe in my name. So this, I'm gonna read you a section of the prayer that was explicitly for us today. He says, I in them and you in me, that they, this is us, may become perfectly one so that they would know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Let's just sit on this just for a moment. The heavenly father loves you the same way he loves Jesus. Think about that. The heavenly father has loved you, loves you with the same degree, the same manner, the same passion that he has loved Jesus Christ. When a mentor of mine told me that years ago, it's like I had skipped that verse subconsciously my entire life. And when he spoke that to me, again, what did I do? It just was like, man, that's hard to receive. 
But it goes back to this point of understanding that, that God's love is self-originating. I've, I've believed that the amount of love I received should equate to the behavior that I've lived out. That the immeasurably expansiveness of God's love is somehow broad but not deep. Even as I was getting ready for today's sermon, I'm just, again, just being totally transparent with you guys. This is one of the hardest sermons I've ever written because I kept looking for, well, what do we do? What do I tell people to do? God's like, this is not that sermon. The only point of today is for you to know that you're loved. Man, I like wrestled to that this week. I was um, sick most of the week. I had a lot of time just to not do stuff, which is hard for me. I thought about this. I prayed about it. I kept looking for like another story or analogy or something that could like spice this up. And really what I was looking for is I still wrestle with this. Just resting in like, this is enough. This, this is the most popular verse in our, popular, in our culture right now. And yet it's maybe the one that's hardest for us to receive. Which leads us just to our third point this morning. <coughs> is that God's love is presently, right now, so filled with mercy. These two verses end when he says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me just break this down. That word whoever is pretty significant right here. Because when it says whoever, it begins to start kind of contrasting these two different realities. the, The reality of perishing and the reality of life. When we read this, however, I've always read this talking, like thinking that he's referring to the afterlife. After you die, will you perish? Will you have life? But what's fascinating about the Greek is all of these verbs are in the present tense. Perishing is a right now reality. Eternal life is a right now possibility. This is what he's referring to. So, so he said, and so by saying whosoever believes shall not perish is, is uh, implicitly saying we're all perishing. Perishing underneath the, what I just talked about, the world's narrative of love, this kind of love that you have to earn, the kind of love that Nicodemus came with in his own devotion and self-righteousness, thinking that somehow he's equated him, his own works to somehow deserving God's love. And Jesus looks at him and says, it doesn't work like that, Nicodemus. You're not seeing the kingdom of God. Let me explain it to you. It culminates with me on a cross. This is the picture of love. It's a self-originating, ever-expansive kind of love that is completely removed from anything you could ever do. It's just inside of who God is. And it's reaching out towards you and a world that is currently right now perishing under the weight of their own work and law. And as he reaches out to them, he says, whoever would believe In this son who is lifted up, who will die on the cross, whoever places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has the gift of being freed from that. 
that gift of eternal life, a life that's filled with vibrancy, a life that's filled with meaning and purpose because you no longer have to believe the lie that you have to perform or achieve to receive the love we're so desperate to get. He says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. There is this beautiful window of time that we right now, this is not Jesus coming in and just in dealing out judgment for what we're doing wrong. He came in and received the judgment, received all of that so that you and I could enter into life. But it's understanding that this is a present gift we have to step into in receiving his mercy. Receiving this incredible, beautiful gift that he gives us. I want to read you another quote from Henry now, and I think just articulates something really powerful. That if this is all true, all of the other immoralities, the, the sin, the iniquity, all of that stuff is really tied to this. It's tied to our inability to receive God's love and in so doing so living in a constant perpetual state of self-rejection. And it might be subtle and current. It might not look like, don't give me a compliment, I'll give you one first. It might look like, I don't know how to sit still in the presence of God because I think he's gonna point a finger at me rather than stretch his arms out towards me. And, and all of these things lead us to other idols, addictions, passions, trying to think, well, maybe there's a love out there I can earn because that feels way more comfortable than just receiving the kind of love that God gives. So now it says it like this, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation of self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. My dark side says, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. I'm gonna invite Brandon to, to come up here and as he plays some keys, I, I felt like this is one of those sermons that like I could preach for two hours, give you more information, more quotes, more Bible verses, and there could still just be a wall. That wall could be because you experienced such a twisted view of love when you were born. That wall could be because you have believed the lie so deeply about your own self-rejection. I don't know what that wall is, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop preaching, and I want to read you just a promise that we find in the Word of God. And my hope is that as I read this over your life, that whatever that wall is that is built up that has prevented you from sensing, knowing, feeling, believing how powerful God's love is for you, that that would just start to 
crumble. So would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet with me? And as, as you do, you just, I want you to do your best to not be distracted right now. So maybe just close your eyes if, if you would. If it would help you, maybe put your hands out in front of you to receive. I, I want, the, to the best of your ability, your undivided attention on, on Jesus Christ. My favorite def, new definition of contemplation is looking at God, looking at you in love. So why don't you do that right now? Let's just look at God, looking at you in love. I'm gonna read uh, the end of Romans 8 over us. And my hope is that as God's word goes forth, that it would break down our inability to receive God's love. Let's just let the Holy Spirit minister to us as we read this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, do, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death, death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen to this. For I am convinced that neither death or life, nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, right now, we just, we come, lay ourselves at your feet, Lord Jesus, that our heart would be able to come and we just confess, God, we have a hard time receiving love. And God, because we can't receive love, our ability to give love is fractured and tainted and conditional. So Lord, we come right now and we sit in our mess just as we are, not our best version, just the real version of who we are. And Holy Spirit, we receive your love. Wash over us like water just coming over our backs, Lord God. Just immerse us, baptize us in your love right now. Lord, I pray for freedom and liberty in this place, Lord God, from those, those sinister lies that would want to convince us that we are unworthy or unlovable or that somehow our lovability earns or merits your love. But Lord, we recognize today that your love, Lord Jesus, is self-originating, 
immeasurably expansive and presently merciful. We rest in that love today. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, with all of our hearts. And at the same time, recognize that we could never imagine the kind of love that you shower on us, that you prove to us on the cross. We welcome that into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.